0: Hello everyone, and welcome to our latest Regulation Around the World podcast. My name is Simon Lovegrove, Global Director of Financial Services Knowledge here at Norton Rose Fulbright. In our Regulation Around the World series, a cross-border team of financial services lawyers focus on key trends in the industry and uncover the varying regulatory issues across multiple jurisdictions. In this issue of regulation around the world, we take a look at beneficial ownership registers, which is a particularly hot topic at the moment. In our written update, which accompanies this podcast, which looks at developments in 15 jurisdictions, it seems clear that jurisdictions are at varying stages in their development of a beneficial ownership register. At one end of the scale, the United Kingdom, for example, has already in place beneficial ownership registers for three different assets, companies, properties, and trusts. Whereas at the other end of the scale, the United States and Australia have just started work on their own registers of beneficial ownership information. In terms of where other jurisdictions have got to, here's a brief summary of developments around the world. Starting in Canada, since June 2019, corporations governed by the Canada Business Corporations Act have had to maintain a securities register of all individuals with significant control over the corporation. Further amendments to the Act, which are covered in the Act data, have not yet been proclaimed into force. In the UAE, Cabinet Resolution number 58 of 2020 on the regulation of the procedures of the real beneficiary came into force, and these introduce a new requirement for companies licensed in the UAE to maintain a register of beneficial owners, shareholders, and nominee board members. However, importantly, data must not be disclosed without the written consent of the beneficial owner or the nominee board member. Moving now to Hong Kong, as from March 2018, the Companies Amendment Ordinance 2018 requires companies incorporated in Hong Kong to maintain beneficial ownership information by way of keeping a significant controller's register for inspection upon demand by law enforcement officers. A year before this, in March 2017, Singapore Passed the Companies Amendment Act 2017 and also the Limited Liability Partnerships Amendment Act 2017 to improve Singapore's transparency regarding the ownership of entities and also to enhance the competitiveness of Singapore as a business hub. Moving across to Shanghai, the People's Bank of China and the State Administration for Market Regulation have co-published draft interim measures on information filing of ultimate beneficial owners of market entities. Although at the moment, the timing for its official promulgation is unclear. In South Africa, amendments to the Trust Property Control Act 1988 and the Companies Act 2008 laid the basis for South Africa to develop a mechanism to bring transparency to the beneficial ownership of corporate vehicles such as trusts and companies. The majority of these amendments recently commenced on the 1st of April. And then finally to Europe, member states have sought to implement beneficial ownership registers in light of the fourth and fifth anti-money laundering directives. However, a decision by the Court of Justice of the European Union last November has led some member states to suspend public access to their beneficial ownership registers. However, notably in France, which is strongly committed to transparency, France at the time of the podcast has maintained access to its register. So in this podcast, I'm joined by colleagues in three jurisdictions, the United States, Australia, and the Netherlands, and my colleagues will provide further views and analysis on developments in their jurisdiction. So in the first part of this podcast, we're going to focus on the United States, where there's a lot going on. Following the enactment by Congress of the Corporate Transparency Act in January 2021, and more recently the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN has been busy establishing rules. Guiding us through developments, I'm very pleased to be joined by Andrew Long, a financial services partner in our New York office, and Tom Delaney, a financial services partner based in Washington, D.C. Welcome both of you, and perhaps if I could open up with this question, uh, how significant is the Corporate Transparency Act when it comes to the disclosure of beneficial ownership information in the United States?
1: Uh, thank you, Simon. It's great to it's great to join the conversation today. Uh, the Corporate Transparency Act is a relatively big deal in the United States uh, because it's the first effort of its kind for uh, with in the United States uh, for the U.S. government to uh, uh, try to obtain information about the beneficial ownership of limited liability companies and other forms of organization That have activities in the United States that up up till now, uh, other than their registration in within a particular state as part of their incorporation process have not been subject to uh, us uh, information uh, gathering, and so this has been an issue that is uh, of of precedence in the US. Not so much in terms of other jurisdictions. Uh, I, I think, in many respects, it's fair to say that the United States is catching up with its peers in in other and other area, in other parts of the world, particularly in Europe, um, where this kind of thing is is has been in place for a while and is and is much more typical. Uh, but in the United States, it's it's a it's a big deal because it's the first of its kind, and um, we've been going through a process since the law putting this in place was enacted in 2021, um, where, as you noted, FinCEN is started to set out uh, a number of regulations to implement this part of the Corporate Transparency Act to to establish this registry and to set up the rules that will govern its activity. Uh, So, so it, 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 it will be something that will be of, of note. It is, it is something that institutions that are banks in, in, in the United States and other financial institutions that are already subject to uh, the implementation of anti-money laundering compliance programs are watching because they want, to, they want to understand the extent to which they will have access to that information and, and how it, it may alleviate some of their, their burdens with respect to determining beneficial ownership of, of corporate clients, uh, and so it, it here it, it is a um, it is something that's enabling the United States to catch up to international standards, and to hopefully uh, uh, do away with what has been a point of criticism when FATF engages in its peer evaluations of jurisdictions. This has been uh, has been identified for many many years as a flaw in the U.S. anti-money laundering compliance structure.
2: And Simon, I think it's also worth noting, you know, there are a lot of parallels, some similarities, some differences, but conceptual parallels between this and the FATCA and CRS uh, reporting regime for tax compliance because they're all ultimately aimed at some kind of beneficial ownership and some kind of control. And you know, in in FATCA and CRS, um, FATCA is looking at U.S. ownership of non-U.S. entities Um, but I think there's been a view for a long time that you know at at some point there would be some system of beneficial ownership reporting whether that was the U.S. signing up to the common reporting standard or you know some FATCA amendment or something else which is what we have here with the Corporate Transparency Act. Um, So you know from outside the U.S. You know, as Tom said, this is kind of just catching up, Um, but, you know, from inside, you know, this is something that relatively few people have had to deal with.
0: Thanks, Andrew. I'd agree with that. Let's move on to the second question now and start looking at the work that the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network has been doing so. On September 29th, 2022, FinCEN issued a final rule establishing a beneficial ownership information reporting requirement pursuant to the CTA. Uh, In your view, what are some of the key things to know about this rule? Is there, for example, anything that firms should be particularly wary of?
1: Well, the first thing to note, uh, I would say, about the rule is that it's it's very sweeping in that it tries to uh, uh, capture uh, any business that is licensed in the United States uh, under under a state law, uh, or a, as well as businesses where that are doing uh, that are not organized outside the United States but are doing business within the United States, so in terms of its capture, it's quite broad potentially. There are numerous exceptions to the rule with respect to. Uh, companies that are, do not have to worry about reporting, and principally publicly traded companies, are are exempt. Uh, as are uh, companies that might be subject to other regulatory regimes, for example, banks, bank holding companies, broker dealers, uh, and 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 others like that uh, that are already subject to extensive uh, regulatory regimes. They they are exempt. Uh, entities that are um, uh, somehow, uh, extensions of, of government, or or, uh, or, or, or at least um, part of a, of a government uh, structure, they themselves are. While they might operate in the corporate sector, they themselves are also exempt from from these reporting requirements. So, the the, the first thing to be aware of is that if you're not falling within a, the very long list of exempted entities, your company uh, or trust arrangement is likely to be covered by this. And so you need to think about what you need to do to comply with it. Um, Now, obviously, the design is to uh, require reporting of beneficial ownership information. Um, Beneficial owners, it doesn't necessarily mean that every single beneficial owner of an entity will need to be reported. In fact, the law, the, the rule and the law sets a threshold at 25%. But there too, it's not necessarily a clear it, it, that's not necessarily a clear standard because uh, you might hit the 25% threshold based on your holdings in a company that, all right, that you either own directly or indirectly through through others that you that you're uh, that you're involved with. So there's a there's the obligation to report the beneficial owners, and then importantly, there's another obligation to uh, also identify a control person so, uh, th- so, there's two real reports that have to be there's two identifiers that have to be provided if If any one or person crosses either directly or indirectly that twenty five percent ownership threshold, that person would have to be reported. In addition, if that person is not also a control person, there would be another uh, individual that would have to be reported. and And that's um, and and obviously, uh, all of the reporting, uh, has to be done uh, pursuant to. Has to be transparent. Has to be accurate. And 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 those those are obligations as well. That if not done, can lead to penalties uh, from from the U.S. side.
2: And and so I think there's a concern in that reporting. You know, if if I'm wearing the hat of a 25% owner. I'm not necessarily the one doing the reporting. It's the thing I own that's doing the reporting. And so there's a concern that the reporting person may provide information that doesn't quite line up with how the reported person would report themselves uh, if they were able to do that. And there is a process to get an individual identifier uh, and then be able to use that number um, instead of of having your information reported potentially multiple times, um, you know that we're still waiting for some details around that process and what it actually looks like, but we're hearing some demand for people to be able to do their own report about themselves, have some control to make sure that that report is accurate about themselves, and then use their unique identifier number whenever. Um, they're going to be reported as the 25 percent owner of something or as a control person of something. Um, There's also a concern um, because the rules require proactive updates as information changes. So particularly uh, maybe some startups or some investment funds and other businesses that are in a kind of fundraising mode where they're beneficial ownership is changing, they may have a higher burden to do these reports, you know, as someone crosses that beneficial ownership threshold, or if there's some complicated governance mechanism, it may be unclear who the control person is, um, or even, you know, there might be, you know, two different people who each would rather see the other one (laughs) reported as the control person Um, So there there may even be some um, influence that these rules have over how some people negotiate their governance rights and indeed even how um, some investors may approach how much of a business they're willing to invest in or be the owner of.
0: Thanks both. It's probably just worth just pausing here for a minute and just mention um, sort of timing that, in the sense that the new rule is effective from January the 1st, 2024. Um, but reporting companies created or registered before uh, 1st of January 2024 will actually have one year uh, to file their initial reports, whilst reporting companies created or registered after that date will have 30 days after creation or registration to file their initial reports. And then once an initial report has been filed, both existing new reporting companies will then have to file updates within 30 days of a change in their beneficial ownership information. I'd just be interested in your reaction as to, to this timing. for example, I mean, do you think a year gives firms enough time uh, to get their house in order? What, what's your reaction to this? Uh,
1: my, my initial reaction is I wonder whether the, the year will be enough for FinCEN to actually set up the mechanics of this and have it smoothly functioning uh, by by the first by by that in that within that year period, um, because you know th- this is a th- there is they're not building off of something that exists today. They're building this whole process uh, from scratch, uh, in, including uh, how that the information will be captured initially, how it would be um, uh, protected. Um, and then, and then setting up uh, secure tra- channels among those who will be able to access that information. So, in, in my mind, st- uh, starting with that that concern, um, I, I think there's still some some doubts about that. And I suspect we will see uh, FinCEN as they get clo- as the deadline draws nearer, uh, perhaps even giving some instruction about how the, the the mechanical process of of filling this information in and, and providing it to the government. Will work. Um, I, 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 Andrew, I, you might have some comments based on your your view of clients, uh, what you're hearing in terms of whether they think that's enough time. Um, I, I guess we all think we could always use more time in life to do anything, but um, you may have different views about that.
2: Well, right, and, and I'm sure there're going to be some technical bugs along the way. Um, you know, on on one level. It sounds easy to say, okay, who are my 25% owners? You know, I can only have four. Uh, but you know, this is an 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 end beneficial owner setup, and so you do have to look through, and and so you know, you're going to be reaching out to your investors, to your stockholders. Um, you know, you may have someone who is a beneficial owner through multiple entities and so you know they show up in multiple places on your cap table and you have to do uh, some calculations around that you have to chase people for their information Um, one of the things that gets uploaded is going to be uh, a copy of someone's passport or some identifying document and you know getting a copy of that um, and then you know having um, a, a place to keep that securely while you're waiting for the system to be ready to accept the filing. Um, so there there are more steps under the hood than it seems when you, you know, make the simple statement, oh, I have to report my 25% beneficial owners and a control person, uh, depending on the the reporting person and who the owners are, that could actually be quite a, a complicated undertaking.
0: Thanks, both. Now, let's move on to FinCEN's latest um, work. It's issued a notice of proposed rulemaking last December, governing who would have access to beneficial ownership information, as well as provisions to safeguard information maintained by FinCEN in the CTA registry. I'd be interested in your views on how the industry has reacted to the proposed rulemaking, and also what are some of the key points being raised? well,
1: in in terms of access to the information, um, not surprisingly, it will be uh, available uh, to federal law enforcement agencies in the United States, uh, to federal regulatory agencies in the United States. Um, it will It will also be available to state enforcement authorities uh, here and and then there there are questions about, uh, the extent to which it may be shared internationally, uh, pursuant to requests for mutual assistance in in matters, um, and and that's th- there are also procedures that will be uh, put put around that as as well. Uh, so, and then and then there there will be access by actors in the private sector. I've mentioned financial institutions and the extent to which uh, they will be able to access and rely on the information. That's available in in the database. Uh, Andrew touched on uh, the the point earlier that those who access information, of course, are going to be subject to uh, additional rules governing how they use and how they protect that information. Andrew, you may want to elaborate on that.
2: Yeah. So you know there there are, are restrictions on who within an accessing organization can access the information um there's various penalties for misuse or disclosure of that information and really what we're talking about is most if not all of the information that one would need to steal another person's identity um so even if you lock it down within you know someone who who has appropriate access under the rules there's always a concern that somehow something accidentally gets out and then once it's out it's out um, you know leaks of this kind of information are you know very hard to undo or cure and so uh, there again you know that's I think a, a motivation for some of the demand we're seeing and people saying well look let me submit this information myself once Um, and let me get my unique identifier number and let me use that. And let's at least try to limit the sharing, uh, limit the access, um, you know, limit not that permitted people are going to misuse the information, but limit the chances that, you know, let's say the database gets hacked or something like that. Um, And that's a concern that we've heard you know, again, with FATCA, with CRS, with other beneficial ownership databases, um, this is a kind of repeating theme. And I think it dovetails uh, with a lot of what's going on uh, in the privacy world anyway, uh, and tensions between, you know, law enforcement and privacy and, and all of that.
0: Thanks, Andrew. Um, I just want to pick up on a, on a comment you made a, a moment ago about FinCEN identifiers. For those who are not on top of the, the proposed new requirements, could you just say a little, a few words about what these things are?
2: Sure. Um, so the idea um, is that if you report all of the information about yourself that would be reported by a company about you, then FinCEN may give you a number, um, you know, like a social security number, like a passport number, like a driver's license number, you know, yet another number that you would then use or that you would give to a company that you're a a beneficial owner of. And then that company, instead of collecting all of your information and submitting it again, that company would be able to just use your number and report you as one of their beneficial owners. Simon, I think the important thing to note as well is that
1: you know, the identifier is, 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 is intended to provide some, both some, some uh, alleviate some of the burden for reporting uh, so that you could just reference that, but it doesn't necessarily prevent, uh, it doesn't shorten, Shorten the amount of information that, at least initially, those seeking an identifier are going to have to uh, uh, provide to under under in the registry. It's just that for successive uses of that information, it would be it would be there would be an expedience around the fact if you obtain an identifier around that.
0: Okay, thanks, Tom. Thanks, uh, Andrew. Um, my final question, perhaps one more for you, Tom. Um, I noticed that we state in the Regulation Around the World update that in relation to the proposed rule, it remains unclear the extent to which U.S. regulated financial institutions, including branches of foreign financial institutions, will be able to fulfill their Bank Secrecy Act mandated due diligence obligations solely by virtue of beneficial ownership information maintained by FinCEN in the CTA registry. I'd be grateful if you could just expand on this. Well, one of the
1: greatest uh, concerns and 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 somewhat burdens of uh, a uh, an anti money laundering compliance program that's that, that any financial institution undertakes is trying to determine the, the beneficial owner of entities, particularly as they uh, those that are complex and those that may have operations in in various jurisdictions of, of the world. Uh, Trying to track down that information based on uh, public filings is, is one thing, but when the, filing, when, when the information is more obscure than that and, and trying to uh, ascertain whether the, the potential customer has given you a full picture a, a, about their ownership structure can be a very difficult thing for financial institutions to accomplish as they evaluate the, the beneficial ownership considerations. And And that has implications not just for you know a, a, a an initial reporting process, but then it has implications for uh, uh, evaluating what the or, or for, um, for actually monitoring what may be going on with that company vis-a-vis others who might have an interest in that in that company. So transactions that may flow through accounts that may have uh, uh, parties on the other side that themselves are beneficiaries all become part of the complicated mix of, of trying to evaluate not only beneficial ownership but whether the uh, transactions that are recurring in connection with an account are consistent with what you think the ownership profile of that account is. And, and then you can carry it further and, and consider whether you know th- there are other knockoff uh, implications, for example, whether the beneficiaries or people that have, may have some beneficial ownership interest are operating in a jurisdiction subject to to US or other international sanctions and and whether those are considerations that are brought into play so that's a that's a long-winded wind up to uh, what may be what would could clearly be a, a what institutions would clearly hope is that if they could go to the database the, to the registry and obtain beneficial ownership information about an entity, uh, they could they would like to be able to just stop there. Um, it I, my this is speculation on my part, but I suspect that will not be the case. That if you're you're a bank and you're opening an account for a, a new a new client, um, you uh, you will go you can search the the registry, obtain the beneficial ownership information. But I believe both FinCEN and the financial services regulatory authorities in the United States will expect that you you still diligence that information further, uh, so that you try to you try to determine if it's accurate, uh, if it's up to date. As Andrew said, there's lots of things that go on on day to day basis, and and the updating may not have occurred in, in the registry. Uh, so I, I think that that there'll be that expectation, and then of course. If you find information that's that's perhaps different than what you see in the registry, there, there will probably be there there is some obligation to then turn around and 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 advise FinCEN of that so that the registry itself can can stay up to date. But um, uh, unfortunately, it, when the CTA was initially announced, I think there was a there was a hope that this may uh, actually expedite some of the due diligence operations within financial institutions. And it it is a start, and it certainly will will provide a a reasonable starting point to understand some beneficial ownership information. But I don't think that will be the end of the road uh, in terms of supervisory expectations on the part of regulated banks, broker-dealers, and others.
0: Okay, thanks, Tom. That's very helpful. Um, The deadline for comments on the notice of proposed rulemaking was uh, February the 14th, Um, so I suspect we'll have you back soon to talk about the final rule uh, when it's published, and I suspect we'll get you back after that when FinCEN issues its third and final rulemaking, where it seeks to harmonise its existing CDD rule with the requirements of the CTA, which is to be no later than one year. After the effective date of the beneficial ownership information reporting will the first of January 2024. So again, my thanks, uh, Tom Andrew that was really helpful that concludes this part of the podcast. In this part of the podcast, we move to Australia, where I'm joined by Jeremy Moller, a senior advisor in our risk advisory team in Sydney, Australia. Jeremy, great to have you here. And as my first question, can you summarise why the Australian government has chosen to introduce reforms as regards the disclosure of beneficial ownership?
3: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So the beneficial ownership information available on a public register is intended to increase transparency. It's also trying to discourage the use of complex structures that may avoid legal requirements and obscure tax liabilities. The reform is a key element of Australia um, and their commitment to ensuring that multinationals pay a fairer share of tax. Ultimately, the register is intended to support stronger regulatory and law enforcement responses. This, for example, includes includes tax, financial crime, assist in foreign investment, and also facilitate enforcement of sanctions.
0: Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, let's move on to the second question now. The, the Australian government's proposed that it will adopt a phased approach to its reforms, uh, and that's interesting. Could you first take us through what the phases are?
3: Yes, absolutely. Well, the the phased approach is quite significant, partially because they recognise the burden, both at government and business, to collect, verify, store, and also access beneficial ownership information. This provides flexibility to leverage both technology, but also um, enable development of systems to minimise that regulatory burden. So entities proposed for the first phase are those that are called under the Corporations Act 2001 and they include proprietary companies but also unlisted public companies. These regulated entities would need to maintain a register of all natural persons who who at least satisfy one of the thresholds uh, for having a beneficial owner. In future phases the government intends to consult on uh, future proposed approaches This would include disclosure of beneficial ownership information, for example, for other vehicles like trusts, but also centralisation of the register of beneficial ownership information into a single public registry.
0: Thanks, Jeremy. Um, As my next question, I just want to pick up on on thresholds. And um, I seem to remember you telling me um, when we were talking offline That the the threshold difference between what's going to be used for the beneficial ownership register and also the definition of beneficial ownership
3: for AML CTF purposes. Could you just elaborate on that for me, please? It's one of the points that's quite curious. Um, that they've adopted what they believe would be a 20% ownership threshold. So that um, aligns with existing laws around takeovers and things of that nature. But of course, under the anti-money laundering laws in Australia, beneficial ownership is defined as 25%. So I guess there's a question mark. As to which you should adopt. And again, I think as part of the consultation, the feedback will be had around greater alignment around what that is, just for clarity, and so that regulated and other entities can be clear about what that requirement is. Thanks,
0: Jeremy. Um, just a, another question I had in my mind. Um, did the proposed reforms impact overseas companies operating in Australia?
3: It's a good question. Our understanding is that overseas companies operating in Australia would not need to disclose beneficial ownership information. However, if it's an Australian registered company with beneficial owners based overseas, they would likely need to disclose. And of course, how such information can be um, compelled to be produced will be um, considered as part of the implementation.
0: Thanks, Jeremy. That's definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, And another uh, question I had to my mind as regards the proposed beneficial ownership register is public access, Uh, presumably it's too early to tell in Australia where uh, the government's going to go on this, but be grateful for your
3: thoughts. Well, I think, like other jurisdictions, there's always this te- uh, tension between privacy um, and the disclosure of records, and and we know that you know international pro- approaches have been um, you know different based on the jurisdiction. In Australia, there is seen as a need for having a public beneficial ownership register, uh, but there is a concern or nervousness. Well, around what that will mean around disclosure of certain information, uh, things that may, you know, pose danger to individuals or where inform- information needs to be kept confidential. So I think a key part of the consultation is considering where there may be exemptions to that but as part of the first phase at the moment it's only intended that the information is gathered it wouldn't be on a public register at this stage and of course taking each of those things into account and balancing those privacy tensions with the need for transparency uh, will be critical to the operation of how the the register ultimately works
0: Uh, Thanks, Jeremy. And as my final question, I mean, you and I have known each other for for a number of years now, and you've worked for our our, our risk advisory team in Australia for some time. Um, Just a brief word from you, please, on how our risk advisory team in Australia can take clients through these proposed changes.
3: Yeah, of course. So my background has always been as a lawyer, and I've been, you know, practicing for the last 15 years, starting in New Zealand, working in the UK, and of course, uh, here in Sydney for the last uh, seven or eight years. What I find about our risk advisory practice, though, is we're blending legal skills with our practical risk knowledge, so the team has you know worked in house for uh, entities, worked for regulators, all of those you know types of skills that we bring then to the advice that we bring to our clients. So I've always found that we provide a very practical approach, um, you know, balancing our business and compliance need. Um, and that's why, like an issue like beneficial ownership, we're very conscious about the burden that will place on entities um, around what they need to do from a legal and regulatory perspective. Um, so in terms of how risk advisory operates, that's very much where we're directed towards clients, you know, balancing those needs, um, but of course providing you know best market legal advice as well.
0: Thanks, Jeremy. That's very helpful. Uh, that concludes the Australian section of this podcast. So in this section of the podcast, we move to the Netherlands, where I'm delighted to be joined by Nikolai de Koning, uh, senior associate in our Amsterdam office. Nikolai, it's great that you're with us today to share a sort of European perspective as regards what's been going on. And I'd like to kick off with the following first question. Uh, Since June 2020, Dutch corporate and other legal entities have had to register their beneficial owners. Could you just highlight for our listeners uh, three issues that firms should be aware of when making their registrations?
4: Um, Yes, of course, Simon. Um, More than happy to. Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, Maybe just by way of background, um, the Dutch Act, which implemented the UBO register for corporate and uh, other legal entities, um, was adopted in June 2020 in the Netherlands, like you just said. Um, and the actual register for beneficial owners went live on uh, the 27th of September 2020. So, all a bit later than was required under the fifth anti money laundering directive. Uh, and uh, basically, corporate and legal entities that already existed at the go live date, so on, in, in September 2020, uh, they had the time to register their beneficial owners until the 27th of March 2022. Um, so they were basically given 18 months to comply Um, but actually around the march 2022 deadline only about i believe it was 38 percent had actually done so Um, so and and corporate and other legal entities that um, were established or have been established or incorporated since the go-live date uh, of 27 september 2020 uh, they have been needing to register their beneficial owners basically at the time of the registration in the Dutch trade register. So otherwise you simply aren't able to um, complete your registration there. Um, And and maybe also good to notice that there's a separate legislative proposal which deals with the introduction of the UBO uh, sort of beneficial owner register for trusts and similar legal arrangements. Um, That was only adopted fairly fairly recently uh, and became operational in um, November last year. so, so the, basically Dutch trusts, which we don't really have trust. So it's really similar legal arrangements. And then the most important one for us is, um, the fund for joint account. A lot of investment funds make use of a fund for joint accounts. Uh, they basically have until the 1st of February this year to register the beneficial owners. Uh, but that, that deadline was recently extended by the Dutch minister of finance, um, um, until the 1st of April, uh, this year, um, so yeah, I, I just just wanted to give that as a background. So I think the process for registering beneficial owners for corporate and other legal entities is pretty straightforward by now. Uh, most issues have been ironed out. Um, I can, however, <laughs> speak from firsthand experience that registration process for trusts and similar legal arrangements is still work in progress. Um, information on this process and, and and basically the forms you need to do that are only gradually becoming available. and. The online forms aren't particularly user-friendly, especially not if you do not speak the Dutch language. Uh, so I'm not sure whether I would list these more practical hurdles as one of one of the three issues you asked for, but they certainly don't help. Um, but there are, there are certainly other issues that firms should be aware of when they make their um, registration in in the in the Dutch UBO register. So yeah, I think, first of all, I think it's very important that firms have a sound understanding of the UBO requirements. So they are actually able to fully understand who within their ownership structure qualifies as a beneficial owner and who does not. So especially firms who have complex ownership structures with uh, multiple layers and involving entities in different jurisdictions, they face uh, additional challenges and they especially need to make a careful assessment. And well, that in turn is relevant for another issue, uh, namely that it is crucial that the information that is provided as part of the registration is actually accurate and up to date. So, if a, f- if a firm fails to register the right individuals as their beneficial owners, or if they provide incorrect information on their beneficial owners, they could be facing enforcement actions, uh, which actually include fines of over 20,000 euros, but also, in some on, the, on certain circumstances. Criminal sanctions, um, which could include the possibility for prison sentence. So I think that's an important issue to highlight. Um, what else? Yeah, I think firms will, will also need to make sure that they keep the information on the beneficial owners up to date after the initial registration, seeing that they are actually required to report any changes within eight days to the to the Dutch Chamber of Commerce, who's uh, who's r- responsible for maintaining the Dutch uh, trade register and, and the UBO register. And again here, if you fail to comply with this obligation, that can also result in penalties or fines. And then maybe as a final point, um, which has become a little less relevant since uh, recent ruling from the European Court of Justice, but I think it's nonetheless good that firms carefully consider uh, the potential privacy or security implications when they register their beneficial owners in the NUBO register. I think it goes for all registers throughout Europe. because yeah, un- until recently at least, uh, there was public a- access to the to at least part of the beneficial owner information included in the register. Um, it isn't publicly accessible at the moment for various reasons, uh, but it, it's, very, it's, it's 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 I believe almost certain that individuals with a legitimate interest, uh, which is likely to include journa- journalists, uh, will at some point regain access to the UBO register. So. Privacy implications will remain relevant. Um, so it's good to keep that in mind. And and also good to know that it's possible when you register your beneficial owners that it is possible to request that access to the UO information is restricted under certain circumstances. For example, if the beneficial owner is a minor, or if the information would actually expose that benefic- beneficial owner to well, a disproportionate, controlled high risk of fraud, kidnapping, extortion violence, et cetera. So I think that's probably the final point I wanted to make.
0: Thanks, Nikolai. That was very comprehensive. Uh, we'll come on to the European Court of Justice decision in a moment. But before doing so, um, I just want to pick up on one other uh, topic in light of a, a lot of listeners um, won't be from uh, the Netherlands. And the question is, um, how does the registration regime apply to non-Dutch companies?
4: yeah good question that's that's a question we're asked often and i I think that the happy news there is that the obligation to register beneficial owners in the dutch ubo register doesn't apply to companies which are based outside of the netherlands so non-dutch companies that have no presence or only a branch office in the netherlands uh, they don't need to register the beneficial owners in the netherlands um well seeing that all this is based on um, european legislation it is highly likely that that company will um will need to especially well when they're based in another eu member state that they will need to register their beneficial owners there um so i think that that goes for the for the for the UBO register for um corporate and other legal entities when you look at the separate register for trust and similar legal arrangements it's probably worth noting that only trust with a trustee located in the Netherlands uh, is actually required to register beneficial owners. Um, but the same also applies to trusts or similar legal arrangements, which are actually located outside the EU, but who do enter into business relationships or acquire real estate in the Netherlands. So generally speaking, non-Dutch companies generally aren't captured, but there are some things to keep in mind, especially when it comes to trusts.
0: Okay that's great uh, and as my final question uh, let's um visit the uh, European Court of Justice decision how has the Netherlands reacted uh, to the court's decision uh, which ruled on public access to beneficial ownership registers
4: yeah they were definitely a very interesting ruling um and the dutch government was actually very swift in responding to it and um, so the ruling took place on the- 22nd of november last year and on that very same day the dutch minister of finance uh, actually instructed the dutch chamber of commerce who was responsible for maintaining the UBO register to to suspend access for everyone so this this basically meant that no one not even competent authorities and the and and the dutch financial Intelligence unit were able to access the, the beneficial owner information in this register um the minister did emphasize that this did did not mean and still does not mean that that firms are relieved from their obligation to register the beneficial owners and, and, and report updates, um, but it, it it did have serious implications. Um, so in, in December last year, uh, the the Dutch minister finally actually provided an update, and then she noted that it was expected that the competent authorities and the financial intelligence unit uh, would be shortly regaining access to the Ubersys register, but that it still remained to be seen when obliged entities, so banks, all the financial institutions, but also lawyers, notaries, etc. Um, they wasn't quite sure yet when they would be able to access the UBO register again. That, need, that needed investigation, and at that point the minister did already clearly state that members of the public, so the general public, would not be regaining access to the Dutch uh, UBO register as a result of the, of the ruling. Um, and that going forward, only persons and organizations who have a legitimate interest and can actually demonstrate that interest will be granted access. Uh, again, this also required for investigation. And that that sort of brings us to the the last update, at least that I'm aware of, and that, that the date from the 20th of January, actually. Um, and at that time, the Dutch minister said that competent authorities and the financial interior financial intelligence unit still had no access to the euro register, but they that they should have that as soon as possible. Um, but th- th- that at least they had they had sort of made up their mind and indicated that what it was sufficiently clear that access could be granted to the competent authorities and and financial intelligence uh, financial intelligence unit again uh, and that, that would be arranged well as soon as possible. And Um, The Minister also mentioned that for uh, so obliged entities that they should also have access again uh, as soon as practically and technically possible, I believe she phrased it, Um, but the technical and practical hurdles may actually cause further delay there. Um, Banks would probably regain access sooner than than the other financial institutions, but there hasn't been mention of specific dates. Um, And the Minister... Did re-emphasise that the obligation to register beneficial owners still continue to apply, but the good thing is she also recognised firms may have wanted to understand the the consequences of the um, the ruling from the Court of Justice, and well for that reason waited with their registration. Um, so um, the, the minister confirmed that no enforcement action will be taken for failing to comply with the. Um, uh, obligations to register beneficial owners until the 1st of February this year. Um, and maybe as a final point, there's going to be a um, legislative proposal because Dutch uh, law needs to be amended to make sure it's aligned with the, the ruling of the, the Court of Justice because the way it's currently structured, it isn't. Um, so a, we can expect a legislative proposal, but I haven't heard or seen any updates on that, but it should be there. Uh, June. Thanks
0: Nicolai, that's really helpful and I, I'm sure when, when things start coming out again uh, you'll be blogging them on the Dutch page of the Regulation Tomorrow blog. Uh, that concludes the Netherlands section of this podcast. Thanks again Nikolai. Thank you. So that concludes this edition of Regulation Around the World. As I mentioned at the outset, a written update accompanies this podcast and covers developments in 15 jurisdictions. This can be found on the Regulation Around the World webpage on the North Rose Fulbright website. Many thanks for listening. Goodbye.